The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 16, General McNally and Director Peabody killed in a plane crash. Early the next morning, the president was briefed on what he'd say in the news conference he had scheduled concerning the death of General McNally and Director Peabody. It was only after hours of discussion that he finally relaxed in the Oval Office. He scribbled some notes on a small pad and talked to his close friend Joey Carruthers on the telephone. He was laughing and now feeling genuinely relieved. Rich Neal sat back in the chair to the president's right. He was also very relaxed with his legs crossed and a clipboard balanced on his knee. Okay, Joey, laughed the president. I will. No, (laughs) yes. Okay, very good. Yes, I will. Good enough. Goodbye, Joey. He put down the receiver, still laughing. That man is something else. Well, Mr. President, he looked at his watch. We have 20 minutes until the press conference. Right, Rich. I must say I feel good about this conference. No one heard the radio transmissions on that frequency, he said as he counted on his fingers. And no one besides our fighters witnessed the explosion. As I said before, Mr. President, we're damn lucky to get out of this one, from all standpoints. Considering all that went wrong over the weekend, I'd say that we deserve a little luck, said the President, as his reservations about the death of the two men had vanished. He was oblivious to the fact that he had ordered their deaths, and he knew it. Even though there were extenuating circumstances, he was directly responsible for their deaths. I'm sure the conference will go well, Mr. President. Of course it will, Rich. We hold all the cards. No one will ever find the records of that jet, and the plain fact is the press never liked either one of them anyways. He said as he gestured with his hands. Polanski lay on the hospital sheets. He was watching the cartoons on the television set on the far wall. In the two days he had been at the hospital, he had made remarkable progress. He arrived half dead and starved. However, through the blood transfusions and intravenous injections and many a chocolate milkshake, he was regaining his former strength. His conversations with the nurses were monitored by Agent Perkins and Sudbury of the Secret Service. He was enjoying the cartoons as the announcer cut into the audio of the program. We return to the Happy Time Cartoon Hour after this report from ABD News. As the network cut to the show, much to Polanski's chagrin, ABD News Special Report. We interrupt our regularly scheduled programs to bring you this special report from ABD News. Here is ABD News correspondent Vincent Thorndike. The aging newscaster with short white hair came into view. He was superimposed in front of the shot of the presidential podium, which had been set up in front of a vast array of reporters in the East Room of the White House. Good morning from the White House. The president is scheduled to arrive in the East Room of the White House several minutes from now in what will be his 92nd news conference and taking office almost seven years ago. The main topic of this particular news conference will be, without a doubt, the sudden death of FBI Director J. Richmond Peabody and Army General Thomas McNally in an apparent plane crash late Saturday night. All that is known at this point is that the director's private jet, with both men aboard, crashed into the seas over the Gulf of Mexico in an apparent explosion. Sources close to the White House have told ABD News that there were no other passengers aboard the aircraft. It is expected that the president will clarify. Wait, the president is entering the room now and approaching the rostrum. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. Please be seated, said the president, who looked much younger on television. I have an opening statement, and then I will respond to your questions. 
he said with a solemn look on his face. He adjusted his dark tie as he took a piece of paper from his suit coat pocket. On Saturday afternoon, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and Army General Thomas McNally left Andrews Air Force Base. The destination was Orson Air Force Base in Arizona, where they had a scheduled meeting with General Chester Grayson. The meeting never took place. General Grayson was called from his duties because of an emergency in the town of Redstone, Arizona. Five miles due east of the town, an Army transport had crashed. That transport was carrying a cargo which included potentially dangerous chlorine gas. The gas had begun to leak and it seemed necessary that the town of Redstone be evacuated to the nearest town, Temple City. General Grayson explained the situation to the two men as they landed at Carlsbad Air Force Base in New Mexico. The jet was refueled and it took off heading eastward. General Grayson has informed me that the director mentioned an unscheduled meeting in Florida, but my staff has been unable to verify that meeting. The jet was next located over the Gulf of Mexico by a squadron of Air Force jets who picked it up on radar. The explosion of the director's jet was seen moments later on the same radar. No distress signals were sent out previous to the explosion, nor was there any sign of the wreckage. I ordered a complete search of the area by air and sea, but no trace of the wreckage could be found. He looked up from the statement and then spoke extemporaneously. Words cannot express my deep shock at the untimely death of these two distinguished Americans. J. Richmond Peabody served his country with distinction as director of the FBI for 10 years. His entire life was devoted to the service of his country, which he deeply loved. General McNally worked with the OSS in World War II and moved into Army intelligence shortly after the war. His efforts, as those of Director Peabody, were aimed at keeping the country secure at all times. I know that they both acted in a way they thought in the best interest of the United States. Pointed to a woman in the front row. Her words are hardly audible to Polanski until they brought the microphone over to her. face became tense as he looked directly at the reporter. Look, we have two men killed here, Mrs. Lovell. I think we should concentrate on giving them the respect they deserve. Mr. President, said a tall man in the middle row. The president nodded. The president paused for a few seconds. Let me repeat myself. The pilots located the plane on radar. The plane exploded. If one looks at the rate of speed, the elapsed time since takeoff and the flight pattern of the director's plane, plus the fact that they are missing, I think we could reasonably say that the plane on the radar was the director's plane. Another man, a foreign news correspondent in a gray suit, was pointed out by the president. Thoroughly into the satisfaction of the American people. I should note, once again, 
The Navy jets have searched the area, but the wreckage simply is not there. Will it be underwater efforts to locate that wreckage? That's another man in back who had not been recognized. I've been advised that the ocean floor is over 4,000 feet deep in that area, so we haven't begun any attempts at salvaging that wreckage. He said as he pointed to another man in the rear. Yes, Mr. Knight. Mr. President, I don't mean to divert from this, but my question has to do with the economy. No, no, that's quite all right. Unemployment hovering over 7%. Do you intend to sponsor legislation to stimulate the sagging economy, or do you think the priming of the pump at this point would be inflationary? First, let me say that present level of unemployment is totally unacceptable to this administration. What level would be acceptable? Zero. He grinned, and then the answer drew a slight rumble from the reporters. To answer your question, Mr. Knight, yes, we'll be proposing legislation to funnel federal dollars into work programs. I don't think that this alone will fuel inflation. Polanski got out of bed and smashed his fist to the on-off button on the top of the set. He couldn't believe what he had just heard. Monty, a plotter on the Hudson Project, would head the commission to investigate the death of the two other plotters. Polanski could not bring himself to believing that the man who had compassionately greeted him in this very room was now standing in front of the American people with a completely different story. He gritted his teeth as he walked to the window. Tears came to his blue eyes as he looked out at the snow. He was sure that if everything was going to be hushed, he would be more of a hindrance than an asset. He had gone through so much, and now it meant nothing. His thoughts were becoming increasingly cynical and distrusting. He felt helpless, for he couldn't escape. The Secret Service was watching his every move, and the constant surveillance made him lose all hope for the future. As he stared into the crisp winter sky, the words of Dr. Hudson flowed over his brain like some divine inspiration. Polanski, yelled Perkins as he walked into the room. Today's your lucky day, buddy. We're leaving this dump. You can change and we'll be on our way. Just where are we going? You'll see when we get there, said the pockmarked agent. Now get dressed. He put a bag filled with Polanski's clothes on the bed and left the room. In a few minutes, Polanski was whisked to a waiting helicopter on the roof of the hospital. He was flown to an airport just outside Washington, D.C. From the airport, they took him by car to a green ranch house in suburban Washington. He was led into a bedroom and seated on the bed. Then they closed the door and locked it from the outside. There was a single window at the end of the room, but the glass was translucent. In front of the glass were several bars, making escape impossible. He lay back on the hard mattress and clasped his hands behind his head as he looked up at the ceiling. Now his thoughts were ambivalent. He completely distrusted the president by this time. In fact, he was building up an intense hatred of the man. This was probably due to the fact that the president had symbolized everything Polanski had once considered good about his country, and now the reverse was true. But he still clung to his boyhood dreams of what he thought the country was supposed to be all about. If men like Richards had thrived, it was because of the men in power had been lackadaisical. It was they who had forgotten the trust placed in them by the people. Half an hour later, the door was unlocked and Agent Sudbury came in the room. Uh, Mr. Polanski, uh, I will continue to guard you along with Agent Perkins. We'll be staying here indefinitely, said the light-haired man as he smiled. When do I get to go home, Sudbury? I'm afraid I can't answer that question. I've been assigned here with Agent Perkins to prevent your escape. My escape? Where's Perkins? I'm right here, Polanski, said Perkins as he stuck his large nose through the doorway. 
I'm afraid we can't answer any of these questions. We have our artists to keep you here for an indefinite amount of time. That's it. You've got to be joking. I want to talk to the president. Yeah, right. What kind of a country is this? I risk my life and try and save this country from destruction, and this is how I'm treated? I don't expect any reward or even recognition. All I want to do is see my family in Redstone. Is that too much to ask? It's impossible at this moment, Polanski, but we're working on it. You're working on it. I'll see what I can do. Obviously, there's not too much any of you can do. I know too much, right? I can't answer those questions. Just make it clear to me one way or the other so I won't build up any false hope. I told you, I'll see what I can do. I'll be right back. Yeah, you'll see what he can do. Plansky turned around and leaned against the cold steel bars. He tried to imagine what fuzzy images were outside that window. His mind was obsessed with the injustice of the situation. He found it hard to gather his thoughts, so he went back to bed and lay on his stomach. It was at least ten minutes before Perkins returned alone. He had been on the telephone, he said, to Maxwell, head of the Secret Service, who in turn had talked directly to the president. Let me say first, Polanski, that the president understands your concerns. Well, that's nice of him, said Polanski as he sat up and leaned against the headboard. Secondly, you won't be here very long. We're formulating plans to take you to another location which will be more secure for you. When do I get to see my wife and kids, Perkins? Not until the climate is right. We can't afford any leaks. The implications of this are enormous, but then again, I don't have to tell you that, do I? I admire what you did, Polanski. Not many people would have done what you did and survived on top of it. When do I see my family? You will most likely find what I'm about to tell you very distressing. Plansky leaped out of bed and grabbed him by both sides of his collar. If anything's happened to any one of them, I'll kill you all. Sudbury ran down the hallway and separated the two men. Your family is all right, Plansky. Now go sit down so I can tell you what's happened in the last few months, he said as he brushed off his arms. Has anybody told you anything about what happened after you entered the complex? What do you mean? When you disappeared in Los Angeles, it was generally thought that you shot Charlie Stevenson and dropped his body over the side of the Occidental building. I know that Richards' thugs killed Stevenson. Yeah, we know that too. The men responsible were killed in the storming of the complex. But what you probably don't know, that through Richards' intelligence contacts, a body was appropriated. Appropriated? Yes. They put a dead man's body in an incinerator, and they said it was me said Polanski as he swallowed. That's correct. So agents of our own government did this, did they? They were not federal agents. I said Richard's contacts and intelligence. Not all the intelligence that's fed into the agencies comes through agents. Believe me, there are men out there who do anything for a price. And that's what they did. And that's what the coroner did. He identified the body as you. He said the dental records that you had from UCLA gave a firm identification. You mean my family thinks I'm dead? What about the police? Case was neatly closed. They received a note saying in effect that your death is what happens to the friends of Charlie Stevenson or something like that because Stevenson had mob connections and the police accepted the medical examiner's verdict. They thought it was mob retaliation for you killing Stevenson. They had no reason to doubt that. I see. Any questions about this? Well, Perkins, this is just swell. My family's living in Redstone under the premise that I died a murderer. 
What about the medical examiner and the men that put the body in the incinerator? Are they being charged? We just don't want a breakdown of national security. National security? Never mind what's right and wrong. Just like putting Monty in on that commission, national security doesn't take justice into account, does it? It's one of the facts of life, Polanski, stated Perkins. Is it? I don't think so. I think if you try the truth once in a while, you might learn that people can accept it. No, there are just too many other things to consider. Let me tell you something, Perkins. The president should go public on this whole thing, because if he doesn't, the whole scenario will eventually come out. Maybe 10 years from now or 100 years from now, but it will happen. I'm sure of it. Well, we won't be around to worry about it, will we, Polanski? And Mr. Polanski, if the president went public with this, the Soviet Union would take the probable existence of Hudson as a hostile act, and they'd act accordingly. The hell they would. You people seem to view other nations as strange little entities. These entities composed of people, and those people don't want to die in a holocaust. Well, it's not for us to decide, is it? There's one final aspect of this that I must tell you. Oh, there's more? Your wife remarried. Plansky was taken off guard. He stood once again and walked over to the window. He hung from the metal bars and gripped his hands tightly as if the bars were his last hold on sanity. Perkins slowly crept up behind him. If it matters, she married your boss, Ben Simpson. Ben? asked Polanski as he spun around. Yes. What can I say, Perkins? What do I have left? Why should I even want to go home? Well, Mr. Polanski, sorry you had to learn this, but perhaps I should have been... No, Perkins, I'm all right. One thing I've learned out of all this, he said as he looked Perkins squarely in the eye, I've learned to survive. Join us next time for another exciting episode of The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theatre of the Words. <laughs>